you know, Kate, so you wrote something really controversial uh, that I think maybe what you slipped in towards the end, but you said only parano- paranoiacs could have ever claimed that terrorism could seriously harm the United States. Yeah. It just, the idea that, that only paranoiacs would claim that terrorism could seriously harm the United States. I don't know. Are you a Taliban sympathizer? Are you a terrorist? I mean, it's just like, what are you saying? Uh, <laughs> the first thought that crossed my mind, not that I believe that at all, but the point is like, uh, it seemed that it was pretty universally accepted that terrorists could do terrible damage to yeah, the Taliban population. <laughs> and also not only that, but maybe uh, to the political and economic uh functioning of the US yeah. state. Yeah, well, uh, just to say it clearly, I am not a terrorist and I am not <laughs> sympathizer <laughs> with the Taliban or, mm-hmm. or any of those other groups. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Zero Squared is the Zero Books Podcast. Daniel Bessner is an historian, non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a contributing editor at Jacobin, co-host of the podcast American Prestige, and the author of the upcoming book for Zero Books, Imperial Realism. Daniel, welcome to the Zero Books channel again. Thanks, Doug. And uh, I just want to let everyone know, uh, please check out the podcast American Prestige, uh, which is about U.S. foreign policy uh, going from the assumption uh, that maybe it's not great if the United States dominates the world forever and always. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll we'll be getting into that. Uh, uh, I want to ask you, though, how is that book Imperial Realism coming along? Well, all the essays, I've gotten permission. I just need to write the introduction. That's the hard part. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I look forward to getting that from you. Um, all right. So you recently wrote an essay for The New Republic entitled The Afghanistan War Was Founded on Lies. Some yes, people sir. are still telling them. People generally realize that the justifications for the invasion of Iraq were all lies, uh, but most have believed that the reasons for invading Afghanistan were sound until recently. Um, what were the main lies that were told in order to justify the invasion? I, I think that. Um, so I'm less talking about the invasion. So the I mean, I don't think the invasion was a good idea. I think it was a quixotic project. But the justification for the invasion was that the Taliban had given Osama bin Laden some sort of sanctuary, and the United States therefore needed to go in in order to provide Al Qaeda with safe havens. So I mean, uh, okay, I think that's a, a silly strategic choice. I, I don't think it was necessarily the right thing to do. But the lies that I was really referring to in the piece were the idea that the United States would be able to to build a nation, would be able to build a nation in Afghanistan that essentially in meaningful ways mirrored the democratic, liberal democratic capitalist nation states of the North Atlantic world. Um, that was something that was pursued, depending on where you look, beginning in the mid to late aughts, 
sometimes even earlier. Uh, and uh, it was something that a lot of the American foreign policy establishment supported. Moreover, uh, the, the, the very significant lies was the idea that the United States was just about to turn a corner and that you just needed more troops and more resources or more X or Y in order to build this nation state or to push back the Taliban or whatever it may be. Different people made different arguments at different moments in time. But uh, I think that the incredibly rapid collapse of the Afghan, you know, secular national forces um, demonstrates that this project uh, failed, just totally failed. And I would argue was doomed from the beginning. And I would argue was historically obviously doomed from the beginning. Well, it's interesting because Rumsfeld and Bush both had, I would say, uh, skeptical positions towards nation building. Um, Rumsfeld's theory of Warcraft was, if I, I, I can't quote the actual, what he called it, you know, the actual terms, but it was something along the lines of we, we go in, uh, quickly, we don't commit a lot of troops. It's light and fast kind of military interventions. Yeah, the basic uh, idea. Yeah, mm -hmm. and Bush campaigned on opposing uh, wars based on humanitarian intervention and nation building strategies uh, in two thousand, um, and yet they both ended up, you know, try occupying and trying to uh, do nation building in Afghanistan. So. How did that come about? And was a privatization of that project something that kind of allowed them to get over the ideological hurdles or blockages um, to that kind of project? Well, there was a general skepticism of nation building amongst the Bush and Rumsfeld generation because it failed so catastrophically in South Vietnam. Um, so that was, you know, an, an effort to which the United States devoted an enormous amount of blood and treasure, and it just failed. You know, there was a decent interval, but pretty quickly the North conquered and united the South with itself. So there's a generational skepticism. But I think what happens is that after 9-11, there's this gigantic thirst for vengeance. Um, so the United States needs to do something, and what it does is it first invades Afghanistan and then later uses that, you know, justification of the global war on terror, essentially in its structure, uh, to invade Iraq. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons why nation building um, became the project of the United States in the war in Afghanistan. And frankly, we won't really know until when and if the documents are released. Um, so we have a lot of reportage, we have a lot of guessing, but we need all the documents released, and then we'll actually see the internal debates about what happened. My guess is a couple of things uh, contributed. One, you know, there's just mission creep naturally if you're going to be um, in this uh, if your mission is to basically end terrorism and safe havens in Afghanistan you've got to essentially dominate uh, and occupy the country which was always going to be very difficult I would say impossible uh, a problem fundamentally with uh, essentially the imposition of a nation state form onto a region that it might not make the most sense for and might not actually reflect current political realities or uh, uh, an, an area that is organized around large cities and large urban spaces many of which are mountainous and difficult to govern um, so that's one issue. Uh, the second issue is that, you know, it, it really is not that costly in terms of politics in order to just kind of stay in these countries forever. Bush was elected twice. Obama was elected twice. Um, and, uh, the, you know, these are the people who are directly responsible for what happened in Afghanistan. And that is because, and I have a piece about this coming out also uh, in the New Republic, is that war is essentially a very specialized thing in the United States now. Uh, it is not a, we are not fighting mass wars. Uh, we are fighting wars um, that only a few Americans directly suffer from. 
Uh, that is, a few Americans actually fight them. And also, we're fighting a lot of this with things like special force, a lot of these wars with special forces and drone strikes. So you could kind of commit indefinitely to these efforts. Uh, moreover, the, uh, the war in Afghanistan, just like the war in Iraq, just like war generally, makes a lot of people a lot of money. Um, Private con private defense contractors, NGOs, you know, businesses that are investing in Kabul. So there's a lot of interests that are organized around kind of staying in Afghanistan forever. Um, and these interests triumphed for about 20 years over uh, those who thought that this was basically strategically pointless, uh, a waste of blood and treasure, uh, et cetera. And it, it took the figure of Joe Biden, someone very much raised in a different era, um, kind of, interestingly enough, not of the meritocratic uh, base that has become the Democratic Party elite, rather the meritocratic elite of the Democratic Party. You know, he was very much not an Obama. He's a Delaware politician, um, a lawyer for a time, but really emerged from a different set of political um, conditions to to end the war. Um, kind of just by fiat, which reveals uh, extreme power of the American president to do such things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, going back to the justifications for the invasion of Afghanistan. <clears throat> I just want to return to that because I, I was involved in the peace movement in the very early days, like pretty soon after the attacks of 9-11. Um, and I remember that the Taliban made several offers to turn over bin Laden to extradite him with various conditions. And eventually they offered to just turn him over in exchange for a ceasefire after the bombing campaign began. Do you think those offers should have been taken seriously? And do you think that the way those offers were framed, <clears throat> for instance, in articles that characterize them as refusals to turn over bin Laden um, because the Taliban were demanding evidence or wanted to extradite him to a country that would try him under Sharia law? Do you think that all of that amounted to deliberate lies by the Bush administration and their people in the media? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's again – I would like to have the actual documents to see what people were actually saying at the time. Um, it was my guess. It was a non-starter for uh, Osama bin Laden to be extradited to any place that was the United States. And and my guess is that the Taliban had some sense of that. Uh, in retrospect, um, I think it would have obviously been better for uh, most people in the world, uh, Americans and non-Americans, if the United States had taken the deal and just sort of ended the occupation. Um, but that didn't happen. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear to get to your point about the media that, you know, we have an imperialist media that that um, particularly back then, I think now that media has splintered to a degree where there's no center. Maybe the New York Times is still a center. But, you know, a lot of people I know don't read the New York Times today. Mm -hmm. That was not true 20 years ago. Everyone read the New York Times. Uh, and I think that um, Legacy media institutions, large media corporations are essentially imperialistic in outlook. Um, they essentially abide by the assumption of uh, U.S. foreign policies since 1945, which is that the United States needed to dominate the world through uh, military and economic hegemony. Uh, and that in, in moments when the United States is insulted, they respond, you know, they lash out uh, and think that the hegemon should do it at what it wants in the world. And and this is what happened in Afghanistan. This is what happened in Iraq. This is what has happened repeatedly when the United States intervenes around the world. Um, I do think that there's a generational shift uh, and that millennials and younger people under 40, 45-ish 
um, maybe, you know, late Gen X are much more skeptical about American power because their general experiences have just been incredibly negative with the realities of what it means for the United States to dominate the world. So I do imagine that is shifting. I would be surprised if in 40 years, the New York Times is as imperialist as it is today. I mean, imperialist in different ways, um, probably would be my guess, but not in sort of the large boots on the ground ways that defined uh, American <clears throat> imperialism in the early aughts. Well, didn't the first wave of anti-imperialist uh, sentiment uh, start after or during and after Vietnam? I mean, the, uh, the it goes much deeper in American history, actually. I think that uh, there hasn't been a, a genuine American anti-imperialism since the 30s organized around people like Charles Beard. I wouldn't characterize the anti-Vietnam War movement as in its whole anti-imperialist. It was anti-people getting drafted to fight in Vietnam. Um, and I think it, it actually came apart relatively quickly. Um, once the United States, you know, very smartly shifted to an all volunteer force and Americans had to be much less worried about being drafted, the, the anti-war movement of the boomers essentially just dissipated. What More was the basis over, for the anti-imperialism in the 30s? Just a general skepticism of foreign entanglements going back to the beginning of the American Republic. So in his farewell address, George Washington famously says that the United States should keep apart from Europe, right? And this becomes a very uh, strong uh, a, a very strong sentiment amongst elite Americans until roughly World War II. I would say in, in some real sense, it's a, it's a dominant strand of American thinking with the idea being that the United States will be a city upon a hill, not in terms of changing the world, but in terms of its example. This changes for a variety of reasons over the first half of the 20th century. And I would say you referred to the peace movement. I don't think we've had in this country a real peace movement for almost a century. We've had smatterings of anti-war things, in particular wars, but we have it. If you look at the, the uh, I could pull up the numbers if we want, but the peace movement was just massive uh, after World War One in, in, in the 20s and the early 1930s, and that really ends. So I think we've been living, even in the opposition, have been living in an imperialist era without really providing any sort of alternative to the American elite. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you characterize the reaction to the Taliban retaking Afghanistan as a neoconservative reaction that wants to, that basically is ideologically committed to this American imperialism. Um, is that am I characterizing that? Yeah, correctly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, to the fundamental assumptions, they wouldn't call it imperialism; they'd call it leadership. But yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. But putting that aside, um, what do you make the idea that maybe we we just won in Afghanistan, or like you know, Noam Chomsky says that the, we shouldn't think of the Vietnam War as a loss for the United States because it demonstrated the extent. Uh, of the kinds of consequences that could rain down on regimes that get out of line <clears throat> and also eventually led to the outcome of a Vietnam that was integrated into the international order and, you know, as a capitalist nation. Um, could the invasion of Afghanistan be considered a victory for U.S. power as well by that? Um, I mean, U.S. power is going to remain essentially unchanged. I, I think that people are, are really wrong to say that the U.S. empire is in any real decline. Uh, the structure of the empire is going to remain. Biden made that very clear with his speech on Afghanistan a few days ago. The structure of counterterrorism is going to remain. The bases are going to remain, 750 bases. The money, I mean, the U.S. could fight these wars that essentially like costless to itself as, a, as an imperial project. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, okay, right. Um what about this role that the United States plays? You know, you're calling it imperialist. I think that's relatively accurate, but it also plays this role as like the policemen of the world. Um, and it seems to be aiming at creating a international capitalist system that is, I wouldn't call stable, but which 
can on some level or another function like it do you think that role is necessary under the in, this system like with with given that we're living in, in an international capitalist world do you think that some state would have to take that kind of role uh and if so do you think there's another world power that's ready and willing to take that role up if the u.s steps down uh, well, I, I don't think the U.S. is stepping down, and I actually think this is a real weakness in left-wing analysis. We're pretty good on international capitalism and global flows of capital. We're pretty bad on understanding how that interacts with the nationally-based American security apparatus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been saying for years that, like, uh, you know, if I ever had had time or gumption or ability <laughs> to do it one day, I'd really like to have like sort of the Leo Panitch. Uh, who did he write a book? Uh, God, who did he write a book? The famous pa- uh, Gindin? Is it Panitch and Gindin? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, their great book on on sort of global capitalism, I think, needs to be augmented with a book that incorporates a security analysis into that, because I think what they, they form each other, you know, intersectional analysis of both economics and security. We don't really even know how it operates, uh, frankly. You know, we don't we don't know. We haven't done that analysis. Um, so I think that's a difficult question to answer. I don't think any other power um, right now has the ability or more importantly, maybe in the case of China in a few years, the willingness to do that. I think it's a peculiar American thing to try to dominate the world in a way that the United States has done due to the vagaries of the um, structural conditions that operated at the end of the Cold War on one hand and the deep history of American universalistic Protestantism on the other that, you know, pushes the United States to think in universalizing terms in particular moments. I don't think China has that. Russia is not even, it's ridiculous when people refer to Russia as a peer competitor. It is just not, um, China is not even really a peer competitor in my opinion, but it, it, it comes closest and, and no, I, I don't think so. Um, now the question is i want to interject and say it's that that capitalism itself came out of the very ideological conditions that you know the protestantism the universalism that's also a kind of in the background of capitalist relations in general and capitalism becomes a universal standard the capitalist production the market all of that is always pushing to universalize right and and expand so uh as long as the global capitalist order which can be traced back maybe to these uh, conditions, cultural conditions before it um, exists, then wouldn't whatever state uh, was tasked with securing that universalist uh, set of relations have to be, have that kind of ideology or, or no, it's unclear. I mean, it's unclear, right? I, I think it's unclear how it operates. Uh, we're, the question is to what degree is the algorithm conscious of itself? Uh, to what degree is human action still informing these systems? And I don't think we know. Uh, I think the, the uh, enormous revolution in information technology in the last 10, 15 years has not been successfully incorporated into Marxist theorizing or security theorizing. I, I just, I honestly think it's a lacuna in our, in our knowledge. And I don't know the answer. And I don't think anyone is even really ventured answer what what kinds of questions do you think are raised by by the digital technologies and the difference between the security apparatus and the actual global capitalist so the question the major question is to what degree are global capital flows dependent on american imperialism and a nationally defined american imperialism and security Mm -hmm. structure um and i don't think we know 
Um, I don't think we know the weak points. I don't think we know the structures. Uh, and in terms of financialization, I don't think we know how the total abstraction of, of, of value away from any sort of species or any sort of raw material has informed capitalism. It does seem like at this point, um, and, and TBD, of course, but it, it seems like it's unlikely we'll see a 2008 again because I don't think the system would allow itself to fail in that regard uh, without some sort of you know exogenous force like climate change or the proletariat becoming conscious of itself on a transnational scale, which, um, you know, part of my pessimism doesn't seem like it's on the verge of happening anytime soon. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, it's, that's you, you said something really interesting. Um, the, that the, the fact that money has been kind of, uh, alienated away from any particular commodity, material commodity <clears throat> might change the game of our politics and how we think about issues like security. And that like intuitively, I think I follow, but I'm not sure if I could really work out, the details of how that uh one thing affects the well other. the details haven't been worked out so i mean right, like they right, just right. haven't been. that's a that's a book project but 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 right but <clears throat> one of the like i think i know that there are marxists out there uh that still think that even though nixon took us off the gold standard the gold or uh is still the commodity that regulates the value of money in some way with if not as directly as it did politically in the past like you know you can still like uh the understanding what money is and how it relates to value uh produced by laborers you know is will it strangely enough it seems to me inform your presuppositions that will then you know set you off on a task to try to figure this question of security and 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 capital out. Uh, so if you believe that, you know, if MMT theory, you might have a different view of the security apparatus. than if you have, if you believe some sort of old style Marxist accounting of, of money. Um, so it's, it's, it's funny to me how quickly we shift into these long-term, you know, never quite settled debates about the nature of money. And you know, yeah, and I mean, I like all that. That's all interesting theory stuff. But to me, as a historian and as a Marxist, the most important thing is to see how they operate in history. And I think a lot of people online get lost in these theoretical debates because people have no impact on politics these days as a general rule. So might as well, you know, <laughs> argue about MMT or whatever when you're not actually, you know, you're in no no meaningful way is left to have any control over the les, levers of power. No, I mean, what what are the Fed terms? They're 14 years. Is that correct? I mean, so so a lot of I mean, people don't have any impact on this. So like, I find the kind of arguing like interesting, but politically pointless. Yeah, well, we sh we'll talk about that in the parrot room because I I I think that by taking that stance, you're lowering the horizon of what our politics might be able to be. You know, if well, you, I mean, that's the, to, that's the gambit. Yeah, <laughs> right. You mean, know. Yeah, sure. I mean, you got to say that to keep on going. But I'm <laughs> saying, uh, and I agree, that's what I do, right? Then then basically you're, now we're talking about political education and stuff. And that's what you have, that's what you have to do in a moment of retreat. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. So, okay. So, um, so the next question I was going to ask, which is what economic political role does U.S. play in terms of the functioning of international capitalism is one that you basically have already told me you can't quite answer and you don't think anyone can. Um, and uh, so I guess I want to skip ahead then to some of the last questions. Well, I mean, you could you could mention dollar diplomacy. Okay. The fact what, that the dollar is the international... 
The fact that the uh, the dollar is the international reserve currency provides the United States with an enormous amount of power and leverage over other nations, uh, not only allies, but every nation in the world that needs access to the Fed. Um, so, I, I mean, I do think like a, a concrete move that one could be pushing toward, which again, I, th I see no hope of realization, is monetary multilateralism. Um, I don't see how that would happen um, in any meaningful way. But, you know, that's like a site of struggle that I don't hear much about on the left, uh, which is, you know, de-dollarizing uh, de the world. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think necessarily the answers in, in, in China creating an alternative currency. Ideally, it'd be in more, a, a more democratic practice. Um, but, you know, that's, a, that's an important side of struggle that people don't talk about very much at all. Yeah, what about like um, the an Esperanto version of currency? You know, like one yeah. currency for the whole world. Right. I think that'll fare about as well as Esperanto at this moment. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so, uh, you know, Kate. So you wrote something really controversial uh, that I think maybe what you slipped in towards the end, but you said only parano paranoiacs could have ever claimed that terrorism could seriously harm the United States. Yeah. Um. And I just, you know, being 2930 around the time that the attack, I was 30 actually, when the attacks of September 11th happened and remembering it, you know, like it was yesterday in some ways, it just the idea that that only paranoiacs would claim that terrorism could seriously harm the United States. I don't know. Are you a Taliban sympathizer? Are you a terrorist? I mean, it's just like, what are you saying? Uh, <laughs> the first thought that crossed my mind, not that I believe that at all, but the point is like, uh, it seemed that it was pretty universally accepted that terrorists could do terrible damage to yeah, the Australian population and <laughs> also not only that, but maybe uh, to the political and economic uh, functioning of the U.S. Yeah. state. Yeah, well, uh, just to say it clearly, I am not a terrorist and I am not <laughs> sympathizer <laughs> with the Taliban or, or mm -hmm. any of those other groups. Um, I'm they, just asking I, you the kinds of questions I got asked back in the right. day. I, I, yeah, sure. Uh, I think that makes sense. I think, like, understandably, the initial emotional response uh, after 9-11, I mean, I was in New York. Mm -hmm. I'm from New York. Uh, it's it's not a um, surprise that, you know, it was one of fear and anxiety, right? You, people are human beings, of course. But I think after, you know, a few weeks, a few months, uh, one would have to take a, a, a rational look at the threats that the United States faces and moments of stochastic violence through, you know, uh, domestic extremists or um, what Biden is calling domestic violent extremists or, you know, other groups are, are always a um, an element of any modern society particularly an interconnected one and have been since the middle of the 19th century, if not earlier. You know, the SRs in Russia, the various attacks on European aristocracy, you know, Leon Chogol's is, forgive me if I pronounce that incorrectly, assassination of McKinley. I mean, the small groups are able to commit acts of violence. That is something that is endemic to modernity and modern society. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that they pose a threat to the Republic. And I would say the same about, you know, um, uh, I, I would say that that is a general rule of of how I approach, you know, quote unquote terrorism, which again is is more of a description of a tactic as opposed to an ideology. And Lisa Stampnitsky, forgive me if I pronounce the name wrong, wrote an excellent book on terrorism studies and how you know that it doesn't really make sense. Um, but I do uh, as a discipline or as an approach. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I, I stand by that. I think if you took a step back and looked at, you know, the the um, fate of the republic, the fate of what it means to be an American, um, even in its you know liberal forms or whatever. I don't think terrorism ever po posed any significant threat to that. 
I, I think it would be hard to argue otherwise. I think the United States is an incredibly safe country, has been an incredibly safe country for you know white Americans for the entirety of its existence. Um, and I think we in the United States have no way um, of talking about acceptable risk. You know, and I think that that's a, a peculiar American fantasy that emerged probably during during and after World War II and, and sort of came of age with the baby boom generation is we don't talk about risk. We don't talk about acceptable risk. And now, you know, if you look at our gerontocracy, we don't even talk about death or what an acceptable dotage might be. And to me, these are all related to a, a similar cultural problem, which is the inability to talk about death and annihilation and risk. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm sitting on my desk right now. It's uh, old. <laughs> Peel surprise when you're Ernest Becker's denial of death. Um, so maybe you can come back sometime. We can talk about that topic in Broadway. Uh, but I just want to push back a little bit. I mean, uh, the f fantasy scenario that might be put forward, I think it's been put forward lots and lots of times, is that some terrorist organization, whether it's domestic terrorists, whether it's, you know. Uh, the A-bomb or biological war, is that where we're headed? A-bomb. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. an old style Hiroshima size uh, homemade nuclear weapon. Sure. I mean, let's get I, rid I, of I, let's de I, nuclear zero. I'm in favor of nuclear zero. If that's what the it's a, if that's what the fear is. If the other option is having basically a, a garrison state, I'm not in favor of that. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Yeah, I mean I'm with you there, but um I do wonder if you know, it's actually sometimes given how that that narrative is pushed. It seems like a, almost a miracle that we haven't had any terrorist attacks using some, you know, old style nuclear weapon made in someone's garage. You know, it, it seems well, like this is not, this is not my specialty, but I don't think it's that easy to develop and detonate nuclear weapons. Um, my understanding is that that's not an especially easy thing to do. There was a movie in the late eighties where a kid made a nuclear weapon as a science project accident <laughs> it was do you remember that yeah yeah i mean like hi highly enriching uranium and getting access to highly enriched uranium i don't think is the easiest thing in the world despite what back to the future would have you believe right right okay okay all right well i'll just have to take your word for that and, and also i think we can't play on the terrain of extremity which is what we we just have to call that out as being what it, can we curse on this yeah go ahead yeah it's, it's just bullshit you know like according okay. to that logic i should never leave my house <laughs> you know mm -hmm. like well, you I, shouldn't there's covid yeah. out there you gotta exactly. stay home <laughs> or you know do like the bruce willis movie surrogates i mean like yeah there's risk in life that is true <laughs> yeah um so okay uh why do you think um there was so much corruption uh in afghanistan among money them? baby money and lack <laughs> of oversight i mean it's it's super far away uh, we have an incredibly large defense budget. A lot of it is funneled to private corporations. So who knows where the hell that money goes? It's mm -hmm. a story as old as time. Going back to Smedley Butler, you know, war is a racket. Always has mm -hmm. been, always will be. And they just, and the, they, like uh, Fukuyama might talk about the need for a national liberal democratic ideology to take hold, to get rid of, uh, the the inherent kind of nepotism and corruption that that was the thesis, your... yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. The thesis and, was that as uh, as as um, societies basically capitalize and wealth is distributed to the middle class, that middle class would naturally embrace liberal principles, liberal democratic principles. That was the that was the right. Fukuyamian thesis. And so you would say that uh, the you know, like I would think, that if you were using that thesis, you would go into Afghanistan and be really concerned about funding uh 
new state institutions that could distribute goods and create a middle class in Afghanistan in order to, I mean, if that's the aim and it doesn't seem like that, nothing like that occurred or very little like that occurred. Well, because it's basically trying to do it in a social structure that didn't develop as it did in the North Atlantic world. You know, it's it's a different fundamentally, the social, you know, we're Marxists, right? Fundamentally, the social relations are different. So you can't just impose that. Uh, right. I mean, I think you can't even just impose the nation state onto it. I don't think it functions as a nation state, even though it's treated as one in the same. It functions as a nation state in a particular way, but it doesn't function as like, a United States is a particular nation state or Germany is a particular nation state or, or Mexico. Afghanistan is a different form of nation state, which has different social relations. So I don't think you could just do the Fukuyama in thesis at this point. I mean, I'm sure um, he would agree with that. <laughs> Fukuyama is very good on saying, yeah, I was wrong. Or like the thesis has been disproven by history. I think he would probably yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Um, do you think that if the uh, United States had been less willing to, privatize its efforts in Afghanistan and had a more traditional nation building approach there that there would have been less corruption, it, you know, if there would have been no, less, no, 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 doomed from the beginning. Okay. I mean, Vietnam showed you could have it all be U S government and there still be quite a bit of corruption. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in your piece, you talk about oh, one, one thing I do want to say is effectively yeah. these mercenary groups are part of the U.S. government, right? I think we have to start thinking of the the state. We have to think more capaciously about the state, and this is an argument I make in my scholarly work. The mm -hmm. state is not just the official organs of the U.S. government. Basically, what, what happens is the state provides basic training, and then these people all become mercenaries. So they're effectively mm -hmm. serving as arms of the American state, even though they're nominally private. They're just making right. more money off of it than they would if they were, you know, a colonel in the in right. The and and I, I agree with you. I, I try to remind myself to emphasize the continuity between like old Fordist style managerial state capitalism and the new neoliberal order that there's actually a lot more continuity than discontinuity there. Uh, and that that the state power is not diminished as much as the Reaganites might want us to pretend that it is. I mean, I think what you see is just like in already in the Fordist order, the national security state was from the beginning private public. You know, the Rand Corporation, which is a private think tank, you know, uh, who mostly worked for the government for a couple of decades, was not officially part of the state, you know, when it was founded in the 40s until the mid 60s and it diversified its research. But, you know, I think from the beginning, it's just that uh, the state has been public private and now it's just been to more areas that are even conservatives would say are, are formally the responsibility of the state, like the military. Okay. So in your essay, you, you talk about there needing to be an organic attempt to build a new government and efficient economy in Afghanistan. I mean, I, I I'm not quoting, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Sure. Um, did you really mean to say it like more like a native attempt rather than an organic attempt? Well, I, I, I mean, like maybe I'm too influenced by the turn of the century, like geopoliticians and, and sort of a little bit of my language is used there. But what, what I what I meant by is that there are, are, are natural isn't quite the right world because it's too like biological. But essentially what I'm getting at is a, a genuine indigenous movement to make political change in a society is, in my opinion, um, ethically what should happen and more lasting anyway. And that's essentially what, I've, what I meant by organic. When you have a power coming in from the outside and trying to force these changes, I just think it's almost always doomed to failure. Maybe not in Germany and Japan because they had various particular histories of, you know, liberalism in a particular way and 
blah, 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 blah. And so the United States could occupy those countries for a bit and then they become genuine democracies. Um, but I, I think in most situations that is unlikely to happen. Now, what you're talking about here is, is a indigenous movement to create a nation of some kind in Afghanistan that would function for the people of Afghanistan. Correct. Yeah, that would that would be ideal. Yeah. Right. But wouldn't any effort to do that have to include creating a nation that could participate in the world market through international trade and that would in, uh, inevitably fall under the influence of more developed nations? Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I also want to change that. <laughs> we should change the world. I, I mean, I agree. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, mean otherwise be, you're talking about just kind of nationalist movements. Yeah, yeah, but this yeah. is the world we live in. I mean, if you want to take my macro historical perspective, I think the left lost about a hundred years ago, and we've been living in the mutual ruin of the contending classes since then. Yeah, I'm not. I think once yeah. the workers fought each other in World War One, and Germany didn't, you know, become the the communist behemoth it was supposed to. Right. Uh, that was that was a big missed opportunity, and I and you know that's the world we live in now. So I I want to conclude by well actually yeah I think this is my conclusion for this section and um. Yeah, I mean, we agree a lot. It's 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 an interesting conversation. One thing that I think I insist on bumping up against is the internal contradiction of capitalism and the and all of that. And the problem with that analysis is that, like what you said just now, is true about <laughs> you know the project for socialism. I think, um, and because it's true, it can become an easy out of the current political moment to say, Oh, well, we just need world revolution. Like, you know, yeah, well, that's okay. not an answer. I mean, that's right, not right. I mean, I, what I think if I was predicting what would happen, uh, I think that climate is going to do enormous damage to the world system. And I have no idea what ha happens as a result of that. And I have no idea what comes during and after and how capitalism does or doesn't accommodate itself to it. I would say from my vantage point on September 2nd, 2021, it does not look like a socialist or communist alternative is in the offing. No, that is not that. my normative. That is not what I normatively want. That is mm -hmm. my empirical analysis of what is and will happen. I could be well, wrong. The other day I was talking to Michael Albert, who wrote a book for us that's coming up called No Bosses. He's the guy who developed Paracon. And we were waiting for Noam Chomsky to show up. We did an interview with Noam Chomsky and Michael Albert. And uh, you know, we'd actually tried to do it a week before. And when I started the conversation with Noam Chomsky and asked him why we needed an, an anarchist alternative to capitalist relations, he first thing out of his mouth was climate change. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Chom Chomsky has never been someone who actually, in my opinion, cared that much about practical politics. Uh, I think you see it in his work from the beginning, and that's like my biggest critique of him and, and a lot of that generation of left-wing thinkers, is that I think they actually thought be that the Fordist compromise would kind of last forever, and they're kind of like the loyal opposition a little bit. I mean, look at the famous responsibility of the intellectuals essay, right? It ends with a call for global development. You know, that is not, to me, a left-wing position. I don't think Chomsky ever took questions of left-wing power seriously because i don't think he ever thought the left-wing would ever achieve power in the united states it's yeah, a okay. big lacuna in his thoughts yeah right i and, and so anyway before the second attempt with chomsky talking to albert and uh he mentions again climate change and human extinction as a uh, something that might be in the background of people's attempts to develop a an alternative to capitalism the paracon and i say look uh michael Human extinction—that's that's what you're going to try to motivate 
workers to try to struggle against. I mean, every one of them is going to die eventually. And human extinction for the all of humanity, well, you know, that's uh, more peaceful than anything that might be actually in the offing. We're not talking about human extinction when it comes to climate change, most likely. We're talking about deepening the general immiseration of the human population and the death of perhaps billions. But we're not talking about the necessarily in a noble way, the extinction of the human race. That would be uh, probably better than the just long-term, maybe thousand years of misery that we're going to impose on the poorest people on the planet as the uh, climate heats up. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I don't think human extinction as an abstract idea is particularly motivating. I mean, I just think capitalism in this country, which is the one I know best, has so reconfigured social relations that any sort, like basically uh, making it impossible for people to form the like the literal, real-lived social relations upon which organization relies, that uh, I think that would be the major problem to overcome. You know, uh, that that's what the gig economy has effectively done. Uh, and that's a really difficult problem. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, you know, I don't see any ready-made solution, frankly. And I think yeah. the left says organize a lot when they don't know what the hell to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the answer of organize is, in fact, not an answer. <laughs> well, it's the same as mine, right? World revolution. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're, that's just a medium intermediary step to world revolutions. Organize. Right. World revolution. Um, uh, okay. So, okay. So now I want to throw Chris Catrone at you because I interviewed him on the Afghanistan just a couple days ago and his is going to go up first. So people will have seen it. Um, but I interviewed this contrarian Marxist named Chris Catrone who claimed that the United States is trying not very successfully to intervene in, in the middle East and around the world to stave off the consequences of other conflicts and maintain the status quo, not necessarily really to develop liberal democracies around the world and to give an example one reason for the occupation of Afghanistan was to make sure that neither Pakistan nor India can use Afghanistan as a resource for war with one another. So if we view the United States playing a role within this larger totality, one that's constantly in crisis, both the United States and in the so-called developing world, would we have to rethink our political aims uh, and go beyond decrying the hypocrisy of the U S and I, you know, should we, do you think maybe turn, Inward. And you know what? This is all me leading up to, uh, you know, what about world revolution, I guess. But I, I don't want to say that simply. Uh, it just seems like if, if, we, if we're going to ask the United States to change, if we're going to organize within, let's be real specific. If we're going to try to organize within the Democratic Party to rein in U.S. imperialism, uh, and we should be prepared for whatever unintended consequences might come, which would, especially if those unintended consequences could be then used as an excuse to move to the right and strengthen uh, the impulse for U.S. imperialism. And so do we need an alternative approach to even reform so that we can uh, develop means of intervening in these problems like for instance between india and pakistan that doesn't rely on uh, u.s imperial action and isn't like a big game of risk well this sounds like 24 dimensional chess so i don't quite <laughs> understand the question well, I don't know. like is there, like do we need a left alternative to these crises like between sure but that's pakistan and, and, and afghanistan in 2021 that's a fantasy then you're playing on the level of fantasy 
I yeah. mean, there there is no transnational working class revolution in the offing, uh, uh, and not even a, a, a transnational working class movement for peace and no there's nothing approaching that and there hasn't been for like literally a hundred years so now now we're in my opinion as like like taking off my like the way i wish it was situation and looking at the way it is i Mm -hmm. I mean that's just to to me the question as phrased and forgive me if i'm misunderstanding or, or or whatever uh that is not a left alternative okay so we could like write in our little magazines what it's sure that i have the left alternative to me is full communism now stop extractivism in the united states stops being at the edge of a chain at the end of a chain of global consumption that's destroying the world that's that's what i want to see and but i I don't see that happening right now and so a left alternative okay (laughs) right right okay like yeah well no you know what i want to have you back on when your imperial realism book comes out and like go through some of the international and like maybe domestic problems that we can diagnose as stemming from this underlying condition of capitalist relations, but also like going through some of the various policy proposals that would be put forward by let's say progressives and by conservatives and then see if we can just, Think up what a Marxist party in the United States would suggest instead. So required there already being an international revolution. So I'll tell you, this is actually related because I was a foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders. And at some point during the campaign, uh, I was asked to basically provide like my blue sky. What, what would you do? Right. Let's say Bernie wins the presidency. What do you do? And like, honestly, a bunch of my things were like put together task forces to study things. Cause we have no idea how this like incredibly diffuse, incredibly powerful domestically situated, but also internationally and transnationally situated structure works. So before we start forming policy proposals, I think we need to do the work of analysis and see how it actually functions. Uh, because otherwise I think we'd be skipping a step. And anything we say would be unrelated to how things are actually working in the world. Right. So what you'd have to do is go slowly, one at a time, have a team of people doing a ton of research, the best people you can get. uh, And probably they'd have to be more knowledgeable and skilled than your average podcaster. (laughs) <laughs> to get that accomplished, which you probably are more than your average podcaster. But. Yeah. Well, I think like, and this is again, a problem of the Chomsky generation. They didn't create the cadre that would be able to do that. So if Bernie won, who the fuck was going to staff that administration? It's going to be a lot of Obama veterans. I promise you that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a big failure of our, of our elders who I respect very much and who I learned a lot from, but they never did the practical political work that you would need to make something like even what you just said possible. Right. And, did, and certainly Gen X didn't do jack shit and that gen, and no, that gen, gen x was basically didn't have an ideology <laughs> yeah, right. and anti-corporation uh, anti-corporatism is not an ideology <laughs> thanks for watching this zero books video if you enjoyed it subscribe to this channel and click on the notifications bell so that you'll be alerted whenever we release a new video you should also consider supporting us on patreon Our patrons get access to our Inside Zero Books podcast every week and can get access to the Zero Books book club and help us to continue making online content from the left.